0: Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make podcasts. I spend most of my life online, but I've got no idea how to fix any of the devices that help me to spend my time there. But I've been invited to a party. It's called a Restart Party and this party might just help me to understand the technology that I use every day and all the time. A Restart Party is a pop-up community repair event where skilled volunteers help people diagnose and repair their broken electronics. They're organised by the Restart Project, who are a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets.
1: And recently I was talking to a product developer and they were like, well, if we can design instructions to put it together, I guess we could design instructions to take it apart. And I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so let's
0: do that then shall we <laughs> that's Layla Ajaralu, who we invited to give a keynote speech at the first international fix fest in october of this year we're fascinated by Layla's work and her positivity in communicating the need for systems thinking in the world of design i had the opportunity to sit down with Layla after her talk And she walked me through her way of looking at things and the journey that she's taken to get to where she is now.
1: Hi, I'm Leila Adjarulu. I'm a designer, sociologist, sustainability provocateur. I do many things, weird and wonderful, to help activate social and environmental change, to give people tools to see the world work differently, and to find ways of designing experiences and narratives and and projects that give people um, agency around designing a world that works better for all of us.
0: And and you describe yourself as a systems thinker. Can you tell us briefly about what you mean by systems thinking and why it's important?
1: I love the way when you said systems, like, what does that mean? Well, basically, the world is made up of systems, right? So I like to say there are three main systems at play in the world. There's the social systems, which are the intangible relationships that humans created, the um, industrial systems, which are all the the stuff that we create that help us live our lives, and then, of course, the environment uh, is the ecosystem, and that provides all of the resources we need. You know, everything that exists on this planet came from this planet, and we'll have to go back to it at some point unless it ends up a space junk. In which case, who knows? It's a mystery. But ultimately, the this like systems thinking is an is an age old concept. The more modern incarnation of systems thinking came about from uh, Jay Forrester at MIT and a lot of the systems thinkers uh, Peter Senge and Donella Meadows, who have really pushed systems thinking from a kind of big policy perspective side of things. were are really looking at like systems thinking is the antidote to reductive thinking. And reductive thinking is what we've all been taught in schools, how to break the world down into individual pieces to be able to then manage it, right? It's like your parents cutting up your food for you when you're a kid so it's easier to chew. That's the world that we've been taught in. And unfortunately, the world's not like that. It's not linear. It's not one dimension. It's three-dimensional, and it's full of chaos and complexity and beauty and wonderment, and parts all fit together. So when you look at the world from a systems perspective and you use systems thinking tools, you can actually start to understand... uh, how to work within the feedbacks and the flows and the complexity and you learn to, that very quickly that everything's interconnected and I don't mean that in like a hippie spiritual way I mean like seriously like I got a body if I took my brain out it ain't gonna work anymore because my brain is connected to everything else and I am also in a dynamic interconnected relationship with a tree that I've never met before because it's producing oxygen that's fueling my body so I can push a lot of these words out in one breath so <laughs> Basically, we don't think in systems, and the world is in systems, so there's a disconnect there. So everything's interconnected, and when you look at the world in this way and you use these tools, you start to realize that um, every problem holds its own solution. There's no blame in systems. Um, So rather than pointing figures and saying, well, you know, the problem of the world is capitalism, is capitalism a byproduct of something else, or is 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 it a cause, or is it a, you know, you have to really understand the dynamics of what's going on, and then you start to really see the unobvious parts of the system. And that's really where the magic happens. And so when we use tools like systems mapping and and feedback loop analysis, which sound really boring and complicated, but it's super not. Like, I actually just wrote a series on this. You can probably provide a link to it. I just did a free uh, toolkit on systems thinking, which shows you how to do systems mapping. It's literally, I I call them brain dumps. You literally figure out how things are related and connected. And you force your brain to start to draw those connections so that when you're looking at a problem or whatever you're looking at, you see relationships rather than obvious parts. And so if we use that when we're talking about designing the world, whether that be a policy design or whether that be a physical product design or a city, then we can design systems that maximize human utility and maximize regenerative contributions to the planet. Because as a species, we have figured out how to extract, but we haven't figured out how to give back positively. And that's going to be at our own detriment. The iceberg, it's called the iceberg model, where like most of us just see the top of the iceberg, but it, we know that it's actually held up by a large mass. That's how it actually pops up above the water. So what we do in systems thinking is really try to dive deep under the kind of Surface to the murky underworld of the way the world works to uncover secret gems that we can then use to like solve problems from poverty to climate change. So it's like a super powerful tool, but it's also really fun. So everyone should do systems thinking, and it's also the easiest way to unlock your own capacity to make change in the world.
0: Well, you've sold me on it uh, <laughs> for sure. So you're um... no
1: longer going to go, system systems thinking i I mean that that just kind of came from
0: just like my my inability to like read very well can you explain your concept of disruptive design
1: so the disruptive design method is a three-part process of um, exploring how to make change in the world i developed it so that it would give people a very simple roadmap basically uh, to move through in an iterative way so there are three parts to the disruptive design method there's mining landscaping and building i feel like you might get what you're supposed to do at each of these stages Mining is about exploration. It's about pulling all the pieces from under the, the obvious linear plane and finding out what's going on. So in this stage, you suspend the need to solve. So you're not sitting there going, well, you know, the problem with blah, blah, blah. But instead, you're like, well, why is that going on? So you basically embrace the world from a curiosity mindset, suspend the need to solve, and you do good research. You know, whether that's observational or participatory or like, whether it's data mining, but you find stuff out. And you pull all those pieces together and bring them up to the next stage, which is landscaping which is where you put all those pieces together in a systems map using systems thinking tools to understand how all of these pieces fit together and what the connections are because the biggest points of intervention to make change are often the the way in which things interact. And so here, you think about it like a bird's eye view. You can come up above this like crazy, big, complex system and you get this perspective shift where you're like... Oh Right. So that's what's going on there. And then from that point, with that bird's eye view, you can actually pick the points of intervention, where you will then move to the building phase, where you build a design intervention that helps shift the status quo of the system that you're seeking to intervene within. And that's when we employ ideation and more design thinking techniques. And anyone can do this. All you need is a brain. <laughs> Most people have them. Um, and, and the ability to f- use these tools, so curiosity, systems thinking, and then ideation. And I mean, I've mean, i designed tools to help people do ideation because I can tell you what, everyone's creative. Everyone. It's just we put our own blocks in, in place. So that's the disruptive design method. It's based on a methodology set that I created. There's 12 parts. They range from gamification and game theory to um, systems interventions and uh, sustainability and ethics and empathy. And all of those modules and pieces of information People can take online as classes. You can listen to hours and hours of my dulcet tones if you really want. And also we, we teach that through the UNSchool, which is the experimental knowledge lab I founded three years ago. Essentially, the reason that I created that intervention was because I was teaching a lot and finding that people were really struggling with like, but how do I make change? I do stuff intuitively. And the best way to try and ever understand what you do is trying to teach it to someone else. Right. So, so really through these hundreds of hours of teaching, I had this like gestalt moment one day where I saw this like three levels and I was like, I have to get people to understand that first you go and mine stuff, then you go and like understand it through and then you build it. Don't build it first because if you build it first you create stuff that the world does not need and you just shift the burden somewhere else in the system.
0: I mean the, the mining element is, is often the area where people are kind of dismissive of that right. kind of yeah that kind of area. I mean as, as someone who kind of creates things like that it's necessary to like have what I call boredom time like time when your brain is actually just thinking about the thing without you fully being aware of it and people like see that as laziness but actually that's incredibly essential to often to, to the projects I make certainly.
1: Certainly there's a lot of research coming out of many different fields from sociology to neuroscience to I guess human behavioral economics around like the the processing experience so you know there's like showering or walking or bathing your dog I don't know and suddenly your brain goes like it's like it's ferreting without you knowing and then it goes, oh, oh, look, mom, I put all the pieces together and made the jigsaw puzzle make sense. I mean, I don't know if your brain screams at you like that, but I call that's that, it. yeah, maybe yours <laughs> says dad, I don't know. <laughs> but it's like, and I call that the gestalt moment, right, where your brain, and it's like that is actually from a systems thinking perspective, an emergent outcome of the experience. Because in systems, we talk about emergence and in biology, that's what happens. New things emerge out of the components, cookings. You could say a really good meal is the emergent outcome of the chef putting these pieces together in a unique way. And that's what you're looking for, right? That's creativity. So ultimately, I think that we have to train our brains to be like problem lovers. And through this mining stuff, you become this curious collector of pieces and that you allow yourself to have times of rest or even completely different things. Like if you do something completely out of your comfort zone, It gives you all of this new neurological activity that then lets your brain go, oh, that thing that I was avoiding gives... It has more space to do that, right? Like, adults should learn to do things that they've never done before and be willing to get it wrong.
0: What other ways do you think that the role of a designer needs to be challenged and interrogated?
1: Well, design is basically what I refer to as the silent social scripter that influences every single thing we do. I'm sitting in a chair right now that's thoroughly uncomfortable and I know that it's designed to keep students alert and awake, right? If it was like a, an office chair that we are designed to be like a womb to, you know that keeps you kind of like supported so you don't get out of your chair all day. The physical world has such incredible power over us. But also, humans design social conventions just as much. And social conventions have extreme power over us neurologically. We have all these cognitive biases and social normative practices, which are essentially some of the problems that we're really trying to face right now Our species, there's a lot of us, right? Like, there's a lot of us. Like, so many of us. It's really crazy. 7.4 billion of us, right? And a large percentage of them have only appeared in the last, you know, few hundred thousand, hundreds of years or thousands of years. It's very recent. We haven't had a lot of time to kind of, like, adapt neurologically to the complexity of so many people and so many new things and technologies, like, designed to hijack our brains and we're all addicted to continuous scroll. I have a problem. I can't stop. Like, if I get on continuous scroll, I know what's going on, but I can't stop, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, stop it! Put it down! But it's showing me all the The things i want like brain science research and i'm like it knows and it's really mean because it knows i can't stop and then i don't sleep at night because i want to read all the articles about brain science you know it's really annoying anyway thing is is that one would argue that we should have more self-control but there's a lot of research that's actually it's like total hijacking you're not in control in those moments you could not pick up your phone you could not have the apps These are all obviously interventions, but really where's the ethics in that conversation? I think that design is one of the only powerful social influencing professions that doesn't have a code of ethics or conduct that forces them to make responsible decisions about the things that they produce, create, and influence the world through. So this is hugely important, that we need a collective conversation about the ethical responsibility of producers so I think that on an individual level like the industry also needs to have more self-reflection on the influence and I hate this because there's there was a period where it was all like designers can save the world and I feel really sorry for designers because they're like what do you mean why is this my responsibility which I get totally I think everybody has responsibility to participate in the world in a way that adds value because I think you can either be primarily you're a producer or primarily you're a consumer in the world. And I mean this in a more metaphorical sense. And if you think about it, it's about either people who choose to give things to the world or people who choose to take things from the world. And entitled people often take because they assume that they deserve it. And sometimes they have no idea. Their, their taking takes from others Right? So this is inequity. And we have very inequitable workplaces, inequitable cities, inequitable countries, inequitable concepts about wealth and value and who gets access to what. And so I think that when we create things, we create narratives and physical things, we create possibility. right? So producers have the potential to create possibility about a different world. And they also mainly, as I've discovered in my work in like. In the, the, with the unschool and disrupt design, is that most people who get into the creative industries have a huge sense of purpose, but then they have this conflict that happens because they need to make money and they end up working in these jobs where they're being told to do things that they don't necessarily ethically feel like they should, but they're conflicted. And this normalization of unethical practices is how we end up with planned obsolescence and huge waste globally. And as I spoke about in my talk you know waste conceptually we have i think we have this end of uh, end of life bias which is a really big problem like waste is terrible because it's lo- losing resources resources that we don't necessarily have forever you know so the issue of waste is that what we've created is we've just created this linear system of things dropping out of the functional system. And that's why repair is so fascinating because it basically, re- this is a made-up word, but one of my favourites, refunctionalizes things. And really everything that's produced, everything, from the glasses you're wearing to this thing that you're holding to the jacket I'm wearing to this uncomfortable chair, is produced to achieve a core function. right? If it doesn't have functionality, it's probably art. I'm really serious here because everything has functionality. And the designer is given a brief to serve function. And to then make it desirable to have that function through their service, through their branded service. And so when you look at all those pieces together and then you apply systems, you're like, okay, cool. So we can deliver functionality in different ways. We can reduce the amount of materials or we can change the the delivery model or we can actually question whether that function is needed in the way that it's been presented for so long. And that's really where innovation comes in. And that's really what we need is we need people pushing at the boundaries of what it means to create things in the world and what it means to deliver functionality to humans and what it means to influence desire to a degree that creates these addictive systems. And, uh, and that is really what I think the industry needs to think about. But it's not just the design industry. It's the design is basically the world. I say that we design the world as humans and the world designs us. We're in a dynamic relationship. And this is really important because the future is not defined... What happens in the next five minutes or 50 years or 50 million is completely the outcome, the emergent outcome of the individual acts of those that are participating in the now. So there's no guarantee that we're going to move to Mars or have, like, internet-connected things or robots run our lives. That This is just people propagating these ideas. Whether they succeed is based on the individual acts of consumers and individuals choosing to opt in or opt out of systems. <laughs>
0: What led you to start thinking about these questions in the first place?
1: (laughs) Uh, Existentialism. (laughs) Why are we here? So I have a couple experiences that happened early on in my life that really kind of shifted the trajectory and one was when I was like 19 or 20 and I um, in Australia we have this absolutely appalling treatment of refugees and um, at the time we were putting you know refugees in detention centers in the middle of the desert and I started pen palling with a woman who was my age and she was from Iran and we only exchanged a few letters um, and then she disappeared this was what happened so we wrote a, a couple letters and in her letter back to me I was sharing like I'm about to go study design and I really want to do this and she was like, oh, yeah, I really want to do blah, 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 and blah, 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 and, like, very similar, not design, but she wanted to – I can't remember what she wanted to study. But I remember reading her words and I was like, this woman's locked in a freaking detention centre and I'm sitting here drinking a latte. Why? Like, why? Like, why? Do you know – not why is she there, but why am I here was Mm. more to the point. And it was, like, very powerful because it made me realise – randomness and I always say this anyone can be a refugee anyone right so you should always treat others as you would want to be treated and for me the thing that really struck me and is that I for whatever reason had been given freedom and voice and I had all the autonomy in the world to decide how to use that time and that language and that energy and that narrative and that I wanted to make sure that I used all of those resources in the way that I would hope someone who understood my plight if I was in that situation would use theirs. And so for me it was really this like self-reflection you know, on like what if I was the person being imprisoned for trying to find a way out of an already terrible situation what would I expect other humans to do for me? And so this became a guiding beacon or pilot light in my life, and it's still like that. And um, that kind of lit the agenda to use my voice loudly and to use it where I can respectfully and uh, protagonistically and to find ways to give narrative to the hidden stories of the world. And to this day, I still really have a big issue that I focus a lot of my energy on design and sustainability and not on the plight of humans. And I have this rational rationalization around it. I call it the solutions pie. Because I also... Another existential crisis within a lot of gin got me to this. But I was like, you know... I, we all have capacity in particular areas. And if you have this big pie and you imagine that everybody takes this really thin sliver like there's too many people at a party and you're trying to be really nice and share it all out, that if you all take that sliver of your responsibility around an area and, and we all invest our capacity, our voices and our freedom to help change the narrative and the status quo of that, then that solution bar is going to be pretty yummy, right? We're going to be able to do it. So I can't take on all the problems of the world and I'm very focused on the material world because I think that a lot of our social inequities um, and environmental problems are directly related to materiality. The other thing that that led me to that particular realisation was when I was in design school, I was sitting in like engineering 101 or something and my lecturer, he was really cool, he was like this funny old guy, he comes in and he's like, all right everyone, open your textbooks to page 56, today we're going to learn about this thing called the Gaia theory. And we're like open the books, get to the page. It was like, you know, ugly textbooks, tiny little picture of like the planet or something. It's like, so everything in nature is interconnected and you're probably gonna make decisions as a designer that will have negative impacts on the planet. So you should probably think about that. And I was like, Stop! <laughs> Wait, what what do you mean? <laughs> like, hang on a second what do you mean everything's interconnected? And it was like, <laughs> why didn't anyone tell me this before? He talked a lot more about like, environmental impacts and potential impacts, right? Like, I'm using examples of like, the caps of, of water bottles and how designers intentionally designed the, the, the thread to be like a 001 millimeter difference so that you know, one brand can't then have their product sold to another brand by the factory. Like The stuff we've been talking about here at the FixFest. And I remember thinking, that's just stupid and I don't want to do that so I turned to the rest of my class and I, I was really freaking out as I think you could imagine I kind of do a lot with this <laughs> character anyway and I turned up like oh my god guys what are we gonna do and I remember this guy sitting next to me he said this is a direct quote I've never forgotten this he said Layla, I don't know why you're freaking out it's not like any of these catastrophic environmental impacts will happen in our lifetime so why should we care and I was like I'm going to make you care. <laughs> so, like, that just basically dictated the last 15 years of my life. I quit design school and studied sociology, majoring in sustainability, and then got really nerdy into life cycle assessment and then did a PhD in industrial design on how to make change as a design practitioner using creativity. And so, like, it was, like, great and really great that those two humans came into my life at particular points to help direct it unintentionally. So, yeah, that those two things particularly. And it just led, like, that, that just opened my mind and I got like, all the books, Victor Papanik and Vance Packard and like old school books from the library because <laughs> it was the time when no one had the internet at home. Mm. So, you know, I got all these books and I read all these amazing thinkers and, I mean, my role in the world now, like what I'm doing, it is the emergent outcome of the work that all of the people before me has done and I stand on the shoulders of, I'm like a link in the chain and I hope, like, with the school and the work that I do is to try and give other people the tools to continue to be links in many chains of change that can happen through using our voices and fighting the good fight and living with purpose and failing well and all of that jazz. (laughs)
0: how should designers and repairers be working together
1: designers need to get better at making repair manuals and thinking about disassembly at the production stage there's like the eco design strategies that were developed like 20 years ago which are still extremely valuable design for disassembly design for modularity design for repairability like they're simple strategies that you can apply to the design process at the concept stage but also now when we're working around the circular economy I've developed these tools for circular systems design which is using systems thinking and circularity in the design process so you are literally designing for holistic products that fit within the world so they can be fully repaired or replaced or remodulated but they fit within a complex ecosystem system like who doesn't want to design things like that way more interesting than making something locked up that no one can get into like how do we make this more impossible for someone to open like oh oh, oh, what fun i had at work today sorry anyone who actually does that job and doesn't sound like that i think that design and repair is a natural relationship because ultimately most designers also know how to put things together but the reason they became designers certainly in the industrial design sector is because they loved pulling things apart like loved it like i've taught so many design programs and the first time i asked, like why do you want to be a designer either like they got obsessed with cars and can't stop drawing them or they used to pull like their phones apart or whatever they could find in the house or they really like furniture like chairs, it's really weird. Those three things seem to be the kind of main motivators. So I think that, you know, there's the natural relationship that exists. Again, you know, it's all about building bridges and creating common narratives around things. And a lot of the time... Linguistics makes it very difficult. So when you use acronyms and things that are very complicated for those of us who don't know how to tinker, pull apart and repair, you kind of create a little microsystem that disables external forces. Like it's protective, I get it. It also kind of fights against what you're trying to achieve. So... Making things more accessible is really important on either side here, you know, like from, from the people who are doing repair and the people who are also creating the products. So I think, you know, bridges and narratives and commonalities, like what, what's the common cause that we're going to be working towards here? And that's certainly cool because this movement towards like circularity basically means that everyone's going to have to figure this stuff out anyway. But I think that the challenge of solving the problems is what could really unite people across these different communities. Because... If you really see a problem as an opportunity, which is what I'm proposing with the disruptive design method and systems approach, is that then the world is just like one really hot, fun project. That you're working on for the rest of your life. It really solves a lot of existential crisis issues you might have because rather than blaming things, you are constantly inquiring about things. And our brains love being like curious because that's how it learns. It's when you shut things down in your brain that you then become like a little less interested, perhaps in life. You know, I think there's a lot to think about in relation to taking on the big challenges that we have and being excited about them and finding uncommon fellows and and partners in crime and collaborate. Like I think collaboration is like the like secret source to success in the world if you can collaborate well. I mean, obviously, those of us who are also bossy have to figure out how to collaborate well with people. <laughs> but it's an amazing thing. There's an, an
0: enormous amount of positivity in the way that you communicate environmental issues and solutions. How do you stay positive and why is this important?
1: Whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I truly have somehow unlocked in my brain a wonderment arena where I can't help but realize that I live in magic like I live in magic it's magic And I don't mean that in a hocus-pocus spirit. Like, I mean, seriously, have you watched a plant grow? Seeds, they're dry. They look dead. You give them the magic ingredients of sun and nutrients and water, and they make life that you then put in your body. Like, it's crazy. It's magic. There's nowhere else in the universe like this. So
0: we're at the Fix Fest. Have you got a favorite moment that's happened over the last couple of days?
1: It's so exciting to have all of these different people together. The community of people who like to repair and fix things. They're like another type of doctor. They're like the pioneers of product medicine or something. Climate scientists are the mystic doctors that predict the future. And fixers and repairers are there kind of like coming along and going, oh, you poor thing. Where does it hurt? Let me put something sugu on this. Or let me let me find a way of, of giving you back your love and function. For me, this is like something I'm extremely passionate about is getting over obsolescence and designing products that last. I really look forward to future events and, and really see this movement grow and helping to find narratives and tools that help make everybody activated in this space
0: restart radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at 1 on tuesdays on resonance 104.4 fm repeated on thursdays at eleven thirty a.m as with all episodes of restart radio we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the restartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communication assistant, Lawrence today's restart party is over so it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other goodbye everybody